0: Melvin Gibbs is joining us today from Manchester, England, where he's busy touring with Arto Lindsay. He'll soon be in Seattle performing with Harriet Tubman, the band, as part of Earshot Jazz Festival. That's on Friday, October 27th at the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. Tickets and information are at earshot.org. Melvin, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's happy to be here and happy to be heading back to the Pacific Northwest once again.
0: Can you take us through your early years? You grew up in Brooklyn. How did you get into music? How did you choose the electric bass?
1: Well, I got into music. I don't know how. It's just one of them things I was just attracted to it. You know, as a teenager, I had a really big record collection. I was thinking about becoming a DJ. And I was just really into bass music you know, because it's the neighborhood I grew in, there's a lot of people from the Caribbean there, so I got into reggae and all the different kind of musics.
0: This was the Flatbush neighborhood in Brooklyn?
1: Yeah, Flatbush, the Hypnist Park. That's important because coming up, yeah, I was into funk because I'm that age, mm-hmm. but also being around Caribbean people, you know, I got into reggae early, you know, uh, soca, Calypso, so I have a, you know, my, my aunt and grandma lived in the Bronx, so I listen to a lot of salsa when I go up there. So it's like I have this kind of wide-ranging musical thing that kind of puts a different flavor on what I do than some of the, you know, some of my contemporaries.
0: I see. And you also had an unusual family reason why you were drawn to the bass, didn't you?
1: Yeah, well, my uh, my mom was totally deaf and my father was almost deaf. But the hook to that is they were both good dancers and their friends were also very good dancers. And I feel like that's a part of why I was attracted to bass because that's the instrument they could did it. You don't have to hear bass, you can feel it.
0: You can feel the vibrations and get the beat that way.
1: Yeah. So that's a that's a big part of it, yes.
0: Now did you start on acoustic bass and then go to
1: electric bass? I started on a I actually started on Kungus. Kungus was my very first instrument. I started on Kungus and Percussion because of the man who lived next door to me who was who actually made percussion instruments. So my first instrument was was Kungus. And then I went to electric bass, and then I went to acoustic bass. And it just so happened that uh, my neighborhood, the the neighborhood jazz musicians decided they wanted the the, the kids in the neighborhood to learn the music. They wanted to pass the music on down through the Black community to the next generation. And my first acoustic bass teacher was uh, Reggie Workman, who was John Coltrane's bass player. So... In addition to all the kind of dance musics I was listening to, I also have a strong foundation in jazz. and This this is the things I kind of got exposed to at at, a fairly young age.
0: And Reggie Workman went all the way back to Art Blakey, I believe, but then forward forward through Coltrane to many of the free jazz pioneers, a very long lineage and long career.
1: Yeah, he's one of the great uh, Philadelphia bass players, you know, and yes. And definitely had the the, the Blakey stamp of approval.
0: So we got to 1998 when you co-founded Harriet Tubman, the trio. How did that come about?
1: Well, I'm connected with both of those guys for, you know, by 98, it was decades. You know, I met Brandon literally in the street in the, in Brooklyn. You know, we and we had played together with Oliver Lake. And Oliver Lake had this, his kind of like Caribbean band that he called Jump Up. I played in and a couple of different versions of that, so I knew him from that.
0: This is Brandon Ross, the guitarist?
1: Yeah, Brandon Ross, the guitar player, yes.
0: And then J.T. Lewis on drums.
1: And J.T., I knew because J.T. played in a... uh, He did a tour with the band Defunct, which I was the original bass player for.
0: And that was back in the 1980s?
1: Yeah, Defunct was in 1980s. Okay. So, but the band came about because uh, Henry Thregel's band... And the Rollins band were both rehearsing in the same rehearsal space in uh, Manhattan, and the guy and, uh, and Brandon and JT decided that they wanted to play together and do something. And I believe it was JT uh, Brandon who suggested that they get a you know bringing a third person. And they mentioned the fact that I was literally in the building, so that's how it started.
0: So when I think of the Power Trio format, I suppose you can go back to Chicago blues bands, or Cream, but to me the iconic example is Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies. Were they a big influence on the sound of Harriet Tubman?
1: I mean, I think the idea of what Hendrix is doing was an influence. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if JT was here, I mean, he would he would put, he would mention Crane because JT's much more, JT's, you know, I mean, they were the kind of the original heavy metal band or whatever, but I think it's, I think the operative word here is freedom. And I think as far as what Jimmy represented, not necessarily you know, so much the musical palette, even though, of course, he's coming from that same musical palette that we all come to because he's got the same heritage. But it's more like a question of, okay, what can you do with three instruments? And the way he stretched the vocabulary of the guitar and the way he stretched the vocabulary of, you know, of the musics that he came up under. I think that that is sort of the metaphor that, you know, is, is applicable to what we're doing, because we're kind of stretching the musics that we came up under in the same way.
0: Now, you've described what the band does as open music. Is that what you mean? The freedom to partake in different genres and combine different styles?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yes, that's 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 one meaning of the word, yes. I mean, the, the genre thing, to me, that's a function of capitalism. That's not a function of music. Because you pick up the instrument and you play it. And then somebody else has to describe what it is. But when you're playing it and when people are listening to it, they're not thinking in terms of, okay, what is it? You know, they're not trying to label it. They're just experiencing it. You have to label it after the fact. And you have to label it so that someone can slide it so they can say, okay, it's this, not that. But what Tubman does is is it's this and that, and that, and that. So it's all about the ands. So that's why the open music idea is applicable.
0: Now, you get a lot of sound out of three instruments. Uh, and that, that thick, dissonant sound that I associate with Harriet Tubman, it reminds me a lot of electric period Miles Davis. Was he an influence as well?
1: Well, uh, I actually, you know, worked quite a bit with Pete. P. Cozy, who was a guitar player, I actually worked quite a bit with him in the late 80s and early 90s. He's actually on one of my albums, you know what I mean? So He was with
0: Davis from 73 to 75.
1: Yes, that music is... I mean, for me and for the other guys in the band, it's a touchstone because in the same way that Jimi Hendrix stretched how you could use a guitar as a musical instrument, Miles was really experimenting with stretching and using the recording studio as a musical instrument. And uh, me coming up in, in, in Flatbush around uh, a lot of Jamaicans, I mean, that that's just what they did was, you know, whatever piece of technology they had, they would figure out how to use it to expand what they were doing. So it's important for that reason. It's also important because as Pete told me himself, the whole point of that late 70s Miles band was that Miles was making black music. He was making music specifically for Black people and specifically in dialogue with the Black music that was happening at the time. And including the idea of open music in that is very much for us, Tubman is very much a dialogue with the different kinds of music that gets subsumed under the terms avant-garde or free because it's really the question of, you know, back to the metaphor of the name, it's a question of what freedom is. So that music that Miles was doing at that time, it was also about freeing himself from the idea that music had to be what he had become famous for and what what he was already iconic for, which is the thing, when you think about Miles now, you know, to me, that's arguably the most important thing about Miles is that he just refused to be boxed. It's like, whatever... Highlight he made he would just okay I did that I'm on to the next thing
0: he kept reinventing himself
1: yes which is which is which is very important you know to I think for human beings you got you got to look at the situation the way it is not the way you wish it was
0: and speaking with Melvin Gibbs bassist for the band Harriet Tubman and after we finish talking we're going to hear the band performing with trumpeter wadada Leo Smith on the album Araminta, which was Harriet Tubman's birth name. And that album in particular reminds me of the dark electric mood of Bitches Brew, even though Wadada's trumpet sound is very different from Miles Davis's trumpet sound. But how did you come to record with Wadada?
1: Well, that was on Brandon's invitation that he reached out to Wadada, because Brandon had been working with him for a while. He's on a few of his records, and Wadada, Frank. You know, thankfully said yes.
0: So the track we'll hear is called The Spiral Path to the Throne. And after that, we're going to hear a Melvin Gibbs solo album. That's very different from the sound world of Harriet Tubman. It's called The Wave. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, The Wave comes out of my longtime connection to a person who is arguably the best visual artist in the world right now man named Arthur Jaffer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the genesis of it was he wanted some music for a piece of his that's called Aghidra. And we talked about what he wanted out of the music. And he played me music of a man named Bernard Gunther, who I was totally unaware of.
0: He's not well-known in the U.S., but he's in the and tradition, lowercase music, playing in the background yeah highly amplified sounds
1: yeah so he played me that and i was not familiar with the music at all but and that's the world know, of,
0: that's the world of noise music of murk's bow and dream crusher and
1: and all of that kind of yeah. stuff yeah and so this thing that i kind of made just because i made it it was sort of made actually as an answer to that tradition in the terms of you know it's not really you don't really hear a lot of bass in that music I kind of looked at it as making urban environmental music. You know, the sounds are very, you know, much sounds of the city. And it's also very, again, talking about stuff that's a, that seems abstract. If you look at traditional African musical instruments, the vast majority of the time, if it's an instrument that's struck or plucked, there will be something on it that generates a noise. That's a non-quote non-musical noise. There'll be some kind of rattle,
0: like the yeah. bottle caps that are that are attached to mbros, or exactly the, the spider web membranes that you get on some of the, the gourd instruments. Exactly, Create a bottle
1: membranes on on the uh, Ghanaian xylophones. Exactly, those things, those sounds are a. And I, instead of what usually happens is when the engineer tells a person, "Okay, you got to remove that because it's sound. I wanted to actually make make music that honored that 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 noise element is a part of African music. And that's kind of one of the big sort of big picture things behind this record, even though it doesn't sound like, quote, African music. It does sound like, quote, African music because of the noise element.
0: I see. Now, you'll be in Seattle with Harriet Tubman on October 27th. But right now you're in the UK. Yes. you tell us what you're up to there.
1: I'm on tour. We're do- I'm doing a duo tour with Arto Lindsay. We're playing Arto's music, and it's just Arto and myself. And we're playing a bunch of things he's traditionally done. And he's got a new record coming out next year. And we're playing a couple of songs from the new record.
0: And you've produced and played on several of his albums, going back uh, quite a long time. Yeah. No wave meets avant funk.
1: Yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's how I met him. When I met him. I was playing in Defunct, and he was re, DNA was rehearsing. And I just went and introduced myself, and we've known each other ever since. So, it's, yeah, it's a good 40-plus years at this point.
0: Yes, the the breakout years of the downtown scene in the, the 70s, mm-hmm. then. Yeah. What else are you working on right now? What should we be on the lookout for from Melvin Gibbs?
1: The thing that's taken up a lot of my bandwidth lately is I'm working on a book. So. Uh-huh. And the working title of the book is The Science of Black Music. And it's sort of a memoir, but it's also a, basically a guide to how I figured out the, the different aspects of how I deciphered how to deal with these different musics all over the world. Because so I played with people all over the diaspora. As I said, I grew up the neighborhood I grew up with, was all for people all over the Caribbean. And just kind of like talking about the commonalities and differences of music of the African continent and the diaspora and kind of what connects them and what separates them and the structural things that I was able to garner over the years of actually having to do the music, which is significantly different than what the ethnomusicological uh you know literature would tell you.
0: Do we know when the book will be available yet?
1: No, because is not finished yet. Right. Hopefully, you know. You know, I'm probably looking at 25 at
0: this point. My guest has been Melvin Gibbs, bassist, composer, one third of the band, Harriet Tubman, coming to Earshot Jazz Festival on Friday, October 27th. Concert is at 8 p.m. at the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute in Seattle's Central District. Go to earshot.org for more information. Melvin, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much for giving us your time today, and we'll see you on the 27th.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and you know, thanks to all the listeners for listening, and I'm going to enjoy being out on the West Coast again.
0: Now, here is The Spiral Path to the Throne by Harriet Tubman and Wadada Leo Smith.